Send it again, Charlie. Koof. Okay, here we go. Koof. Have you seen it? Yeah, you got it. Uh, sun on the horizon. Condense. Circle. Time. I call with all my heart. Answer me, O Lord, and I will obey your decrees. Call out to you. Save me, and I will keep you. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I have put my hope in your word. My eyes stay open through the watches of the night that I might meditate on your promise. Hear my voice in accordance with your love. Preserve my life according to your laws. Those who devise wicked schemes are near, but they are far from your law. Yes, you are near, O Lord, and all your commands are true. Long ago, I learned from your statutes that you established them to last forever. Good stuff. That's a wonderful part of that psalm. Okay, he says, we are live. It's working. Let's see. We got some uh, prayer requests. Today is the 18th. Is that correct? So uh, Dar 19th. Darlene's brother's already had his uh, uh, surgery. I have not heard from her how he is, so we can skip that. Rick had his surgery on Tuesday, and he had quintuple bypass surgery. And so uh, it was a rather serious uh, matter, which I don't think he was expecting that at all, but he's doing fine so far. And uh, let's see here. We have um, uh, Lothar says hi to everybody all the way from Germany. And then uh, Marcy, uh, if anybody has a prodigal son or daughter and wants to join kind of fellowship with somebody that has gone through that and is still going through it, Email me and I will hook you up with her. She uh, she asked me to offer that today. So that's Marcy. If you have somebody that you're just struggling with in your uh, children and you want to talk about it with another person that understands that, let me know. And uh, uh, Marcus, I just got an email. Um, he heard the gospel for the first time today or yesterday. And that's Kyle out in California telling people about Jesus. Good job, Kyle. And uh, he asked for prayers for Marcus. The guy had never even been to a church in his whole life. So, yeah, hope that he will make the right decision. Lisa in Australia, I just heard from her. She has a toe that almost got cut off, and it's kind of gotten infected. And it has an odor, which is always bad. She's got some antibiotics, but uh, uh, she's obviously gone through enough in the past year to fill a book of medicine. And so we pray that would be behind her quickly. And then another Lisa has a family member who had his foot amputated. We mentioned that, and uh, now he needs his leg amputated. And he says he's not going to do it. He's going home to die. So we want to keep him and the family in prayer over that particular matter because that's it's just tough. You know, if you have diabetes, and I don't know if it's diabetes or not. I can't remember. But if you do and you get, you know, an infection on your toe, that can end up taking your life very quickly if you don't take care of it. So if you have diabetes, take care of that and uh, regulate it properly because it can go very quickly from a toe to a foot to the under the knee. Next thing you know, your whole leg is gone and the next you're dead because it just goes very quickly. And we've seen this before, Tom and I, several times, and it's always heartbreaking because somebody's there and then they're not. Um, we have, let me pick this up. That fell. So give me a second. Actually bounced. It bounced. I kind of bent the corner, but it's leather, so it'll bend right back. Um, we have um, uh, this day in Christian history. Then we'll say some prayers, and we'll get started in the Bible in just a minute. So I had it marked. There it is. Today is the 19th. Do you know why most English towns have a Havelock Street road or square? 
1815, a young Englishman named Henry Havelock joined the army as a second lieutenant. At that time, promotions in the British Army were purchased. When his father lost his fortune in 1820, Havelock realized that his only hope for advancement was in India, where they could be earned without purchase. Consequently, in 1823, he embarked for India. On the boat Havelock, on the boat, Havelock became friends with James Gardner, a young lieutenant. Gardner led Havelock memoir of the Reverend Harry Martin, the story of where am I? The story of the chaplain of the East India Company who had made the same voyage in 1805 that Havelock was now making. Martin had also been a bright, outwardly moral young man, similar to Havelock in many ways. After college, Martin had experienced a definite conversion, a word that Havelock disliked intensely. Yet Havelock was struck by the last entry in Martin's journal, made a few days before his death at age 31, when he wrote of the sweet comfort of peace that he had received from God. The next book Gardner lent to Havelock was by Thomas Scott. The author traced his spiritual journey from a position very similar to that of Havelock, telling of his pride in his own self-sufficiency and his denial of the deity of Christ. Scott had been slowly influenced by John Newton, the hymn writer and former slave trader, and came to realize that Christ was the Son of God and placed his faith in him. Despite his reservations, Havelock began to have a sense that Gardner, Martin, and Scott were right and that faith in Jesus Christ might meet his own deepest needs. As Gardner guided him through the relevant Bible passages, Havelock came to know a dear and merciful Savior who will never cease to be kind to those who come to him in faith. Havelock had a long and distinguished career in India. He served in the war against Burma, in the First Afghan War, in the First Sikh War, and in the invasion of Persia. Havelock especially distinguished himself during the Indian Mutiny of 1857 when the native regiments of the British Army took control of large areas of India. From July through November, Havelock won 12 battles against the mutineers in spite of being outnumbered every time. His son Harry served as his aide-de-camp. Of even greater satisfaction to Havelock than sharing military victories with his son was the personal victory Harry experienced. Young Harry had come to India with the belief that his father's faith was an unnecessary luxury. But as Harry spent day after day at his father's side, he came to share the widely held conviction that his father was the most brilliant soldier of his day. Harry realized that his father's success could not be separated from his absolute trust in Christ as his counselor and friend. Finally, in November 1857, Harry accepted his father's savior as his own. When news of Havelock's first three victories trickled back to London, he was promoted to a major general and knighted. Unknown to him, on November 19, 1857, the Queen made Havelock a baron, and Parliament voted lifetime pensions for both Henry and his son, Harry, a few days later. When newspapers from London finally arrived in India reporting these adulations, what meant the most to Havelock was not his name, was now a household word throughout England, but the nation recognized him as a Christian general. The day after reading those newspapers, Henry Havelock came down with dysentery and died four days later in the arms of his son. Harry wrote his mother, his end was that of a just man made perfect. Henry Havelock let the world know that the secret to his success was faith in Christ. Because he was empowered by God, he was able to bring glory to God in a way that all could see. Does being a Christian make a difference in your work? Do you consciously seek to glorify God as you fulfill your responsibilities? Matthew 5.16, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father.
Oh, good stuff. Okay, a couple things really quickly from Marcus Carnahan. He sent a great shirt he designed himself. It says, practice zero-foot social intimacy. I like that. Get close to your neighbor and give him a hug. I'm just completely against this entire uh, debacle that's going on in the world right now. Okay, and really quick, came in the mail today. I thought I'd read it to you. Hello there. I'm very glad I found your channel. I am fond of watching Sergio and Rhoda. We had three yeah. groups of people here on Sunday, all visiting, and all three of them had come to the church through Sergio and Rhoda. Well, here's a gentleman. It says, uh, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not making a comment on my Bible prowess. This is just what he said. He said, I've never found a Bible teacher more in line with my own personal doctrine. That's why I thought I could read that, because he doesn't say you're a great teacher. He just says, what he believes is what I believe, so I feel good about that. And Galatians is my favorite New Testament book, too, which, hey, this is a man after my own heart. He's a 62-year-old theology student pursuing an online degree from Tyndale Theological Seminary out of Hearst, Texas. Good job. And uh, he gave a couple of compliments. I'll skip that. My wife and I will be visiting Arcadia, Florida, which is right down the road around Christmas time, and I hope that we can stop by your church one Sunday morning. If he makes it to Florida, and he's an Arcadian, can't make it here, let me see, his name is Chuck Sowards. Chuck, you're in big trouble if you don't come by. Or at least call me and we can meet somewhere, okay? That I was so, look at my hair standing up. What a, what a nice letter. Thank you very much, Chuck. That just made my day. So here we go. We're going to get into uh, prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to pray for these many people that were mentioned that have these afflictions, and some of them are rather serious. I certainly pray for Lisa that she takes good care of that toe and it does not get further infected because that can get serious, and I uh, pray that she'll be wise to take the antibiotics to the full course. And Lord, we uh, pray for all the other people that are mentioned. Some of them seem to be uh, maybe uh, leaving the earth soon, and we would pray that it would be with Christ on their lips. And Lord, we thank you for the chance also to meet here in this study, to share your word and to participate in it. And Lord, how good it is to be into this wonderful, precious word you have given us. Help us to handle it rightly. And if anything is not said, which is correct, which, uh, which is said, which is incorrect, we would pray that that would be uh, alerted to us so that we would have proper doctrine and uh, not teach something which is false. And Lord, we pray these things that you will be glorified and we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get into the first verse, uh, a friend emailed me and uh, he said, we talked about demon possession last week. And I said that uh, in demon possession, uh, there's nothing prescriptive about that. And because that's the case, um, we uh, uh, it's not something that we should be concerned about in the church. And um, he came back with the verse and he said, through prayer and fasting, will these demons come out? And so I will disagree with people that uh, would hold to that verse simply because uh, it is under the dispensation of the law. It was Jesus showing that his ministry is effective and that his apostles' ministry would be effective in what they were doing. But after the crucifixion of Christ, we are now given the Spirit, or we're given the choice to receive the Spirit. And the demon cannot possess a body that has received Jesus Christ. And that's it. There's no need to exercise demons on our part. And kind of a, as a confirmation of that, somebody emailed me with an experience of somebody that was definitely demon-possessed, and this person actually picked up the Bible, and, and there was a great ruckus about the entire thing. But this person came to Christ and is 
okay now. So there you go. I, 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 that's all that you need. Even if you're afflicted or possessed by a demon, you still have a cognitive working brain. And that brain can call on Jesus. And if it does call on Jesus, that demon will depart. And I don't know if that's what I saw in the projects, the people that we've seen in the past or if it was a different working of the Lord. But I can tell you that when somebody does call on Jesus, it is done. You don't need to worry about uh, casting out demons in any way, shape, or form. And uh, I do hold I do hold to the dispensational model. What is said, especially in the three synoptic gospels, is all Jesus under the law, fulfilling the law on our behalf. Uh, John is a little bit different. I've talked about that before. But what is said in the synoptic gospels is it is something that is Christ fulfilling the law. That's why there's three of them. They confirm each other. They build each other up. And they also have some variant forms in them. But what he says, for example, in Matthew 25, which everybody takes out of context, is, you know, uh, uh, speaking of no man knows the day and the hour and the things that are happening in the world. I'm typing the Revelation 6 commentary right now in it parallels very closely the words of Matthew 24. And the book of Revelation, after verse 4-1, is speaking to who, under what? The Jews under the law. Seven more years, Daniel 9, 24 through 27. That is the dispensational model. What Jesus is saying there in Matthew 24, when you compare it with what's said in Revelation 6 and elsewhere, you will see that he is not, not at all, in any way, shape, or form, speaking to the church. I, other than the, you know, the church uh, has the right to the entire Bible as everybody does, but the dispensation has to be taken into consideration, and I am a, a strong dispensationalist. And so I wanted to make sure that was out there in case somebody else had uh, questions about that particular doctrine, and then we'll get into verse 422. Yes, I'll back it up one just as well. That's good. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware? What the law says, 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. Okay, the only difference is the word slave woman here is bond woman. Okay, and, uh, you know, I don't know if uh, uh, bond sometimes means that you are under a person's authority, you're not paid, but, you know, it may be taken as a little less than slavery. And in Abraham's house, they probably had a lot of freedoms. So I'm sure that he was a very caring master, but I don't know. The word can mean either. So, you know, that's the only difference between the two. But here we go, 422. For it is written, Paul goes directly to Scripture, which he does again and again and again. He's going back to, I might as well bring this up right now. Somebody sent me an email today, and they uh, he has got to defend why Paul is actually a part of the Bible because he's in a Bible study where they say that uh, we don't hold to the writings of Paul and he's not, at, you know, this is Hebrew Roots 101 and it's other infectious infections like that. If you hold to Paul, then you obviously don't need to hold to the law of Moses. And, you know, he sent me what he was going to present. It doesn't matter who he is or where he is, but he sent this to me and it was very well laid out. He had pretty much all the points that I had in there. But, um, uh, I will say that uh, he confirms what uh, this gentleman had written down, uh, and he did not have this particular verse in here. It's 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives the gospel. And the reason why they say they don't hold to Paul is because Paul says, my gospel. He says it twice, according to my gospel. But in 1 Timothy, he explains what my gospel is, the gospel that was given to me you know, by the grace of Christ. 
or that's a paraphrase, but anyway, um, okay, here we go. In verse uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 15, it says, uh, yes, uh, where is that? is that? No, maybe it's verse 10. Yes, uh, 9, for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle, but I persecute the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. He's making a complete and 100% comparison of himself to Peter and to Apollos. He just got done speaking of them in the, speaking of them in the previous uh, chapter, and he gave them by name. I'm sure he said um, uh, Peter, and I believe it was Apollos. Okay, anyway, and by saying that there, read it again to you. Therefore, whether it was I or they, meaning them and all of the other apostles, so we preach and so you believed. There is one gospel message. Paul is in accord with them. The difference is that he was selected to do what? Go to the Gentiles. It is not a separate gospel to the Gentiles as it is to the Jews. That is his main focus of ministry. That's the only difference. Hyperdispensationalism does the same thing that these Hebrew roots people are trying to do. They're trying to cut Paul out of the picture of God's redemptive program. And that is as far away from what scripture would have us uh, hold to as it, it, it is as heretical as anything I can think of. And I told him, I said, you might remind them that if you take out Paul, you also have to take out somebody else. You have to take out Luke, because Luke was with Paul the entire time in the book of Acts. And he says, we, 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 we. Have to get rid of Luke. You cannot keep Luke in there, uh, the book of Acts. Okay, if you take out the book of Acts, then you need to take out the gospel of Luke. If you take out the Gospel of Luke, you have to take out the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark because they are synoptic Gospels. They support each other. If you take those out, then you have to take out Peter, who is the apostle that was uh, appointed in Matthew 16, 16. I think you are Peter, you are the Christ, okay? Uh, so Peter is out. All right, if you take out Peter, then you also have the confirmation of Peter that Paul is out because uh, Peter supported Paul as having his writings were in accord with scripture. If you take out Peter, you also have to take out John and you have to take out Jude uh, and you also have to take out James because they are highlighted in those gospels and in James is in the book of Acts, which has been taken out. You have no New Testament if you take out Paul. You have nothing. All you have is the law and you have condemnation. So I want to get that out right now is that if anybody is holding to that doctrine or is trying to seduce you into believing that, that is as heretical as anything I can think of, is taking Paul out of the equation. And the reason why that came to mind is because of what he now says right here. For it is written. He is holding to Scripture, he is teaching Scripture, and he is authoritative to do so according to Acts chapter 9. Go, he is my chosen servant to carry my message to kings and, you know, on and on. All right. But Paul goes directly to Scripture to make his case concerning justification by faith instead of justification by works of the law. The word for shows that Scripture actually has an example that speaks out concerning this issue, which has brought such contention to the church at Galatia. Therefore, the word for is in response to the question of verse 21. Do you not hear the law? All right. In going to Scripture, Paul, he cites an example from a time long before the giving of the law to the time of the great father of the Hebrew faith, Abraham. 
In Genesis, it is recorded that Abraham had other sons later. It's completely ignored. Um, I'm sorry, let me read that again. Yes, um, in Genesis, it is recorded that Abraham had two sons. These two sons were Ishmael first and then Isaac. The fact that Abraham had other sons later is completely ignored because it is irrelevant to what he is going to say. The Bible focuses specifically on these two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, both in Genesis and now, in order to demonstrate spiritual truths for us to consider and to learn from. Of these two sons, one was by a bondwoman. Okay, which one is that? What's her name? Hagar. Hagar, that's right. Okay, that was Ishmael, the son of the bondwoman. He was born to Hagar, the Egyptian maidservant of Sarah. Abraham's wife. She was not free, but rather was a slave, or as it says here, a bondwoman. In contrast to this was Isaac, who was born to a free woman. Isaac was born to Sarah, the wife of Abraham. She was not a slave, but the wife of the owner of the estate. Life application. I know it's a short little commentary. I like to make them a little longer if possible, but this is precise and it gets us to the next verse. Life application. The Old Testament stories are often curious. We know that. And the good thing is that Paul takes a couple of them and he shows us why they're in there. It's not just to tell us that Abraham had a wife and that he kicked out this maidservant. It is to tell us pictures of the coming Christ. If you've never gone through the Genesis sermons, you have missed all of those pictures. We went through each and every one of them and they all, if it's an odd story that just seems, why is this in here? Go watch the Superior Word sermon on it and you will see why it's in there. They're marvelous stories that always point to something else in redemptive history. God doesn't waste words, and he doesn't need to. If he wanted to, he could have said, well, I'm going to tell you about your history, Israel, and then I'm going to tell you how this is, you know, I'm going to tell you a story that will point to Jesus, and I'm going to tell you how he's going to do things. He doesn't do that. He takes one story, and he makes four applications out of it. He has a literal historical application. This really happened. Abraham really existed. He really had a wife. He really, his wife really had a bond servant and she had a child to Abraham. That's a real story. Okay. He also, literal historical, he has a moral application. And I try to stay away from that as much as possible because every preacher on the planet gives you the moral application. I might tell you, don't do this or it's okay to do that. But other than that, that doesn't really interest me because you should already be able to pick up the Bible and say, with your internal guide, because you're scripturally uh, knowledgeable, this is something that I don't want to do, or this is something I'm okay to do. Once again, I will give you a little moral application, but I, I, I steer away from that because it's just a very common thing. All right. If somebody emails me and asks me about that, then I'll let go into more depth. Okay. The next one is there are pictorial representations that are found in there. And those are the ones that I like to focus on. How does this, why is this story in here? Because it's not just in here to tell us about Abraham having a wife. It is in there to show us something else coming in redemptive history. That is what Paul is going to show us with this particular story. Well, from Genesis, they all do it. All of them. Okay? And then there's the prophetic. Sometimes there will be a prophetic angle in that story, which will actually make a prophecy of something else. So you've got four applications. That's known as the quadriga for uses for each passage. Not all of them do that, but most of them, in Genesis especially, will do that. So you have those four applications, and uh, the ones that I especially like to focus on are the pictorial. How does this point to Christ? Why? Because he's the focus of all of the uh, 
He's the purpose for scripture. We wouldn't need any scripture at all if it wasn't for Jesus. We wouldn't need to know who the Jews are. We wouldn't need to know any of those things. But in knowing Jesus, then we can understand why those stories are given and how they point to the greater redemptive narrative. Anyway, um, Old Testament stories are often curious. We ask ourselves, why does the Bible focus on this odd story? Is this all that God wants us to hear? Stories about love affairs, intrigue, life and death and the like? The answer is that these stories are always intended to point to other spiritual truths. Always. This doesn't mean that we can just make up an allegorical meaning to them to suit our desires. This is something way too many people do. They say, well, this picture's this, and it has nothing to do with the context. It has nothing to do with what's coming in Christ. It's complete abuse of Scripture, and you have to be very careful that in the way that you know whether something is proper or not is because it will actually align with the rest of Scripture. And I said this maybe in this class, maybe it was to somebody else. Uh, when we got to the Balaam, Balaam people call him, Balaam and his donkey, it's four chapters of the book of Numbers. I never did figure out why they were in there. What is the pictorial application? And I was not going to make something up. I'm sorry, that's not going to happen. They were good sermons. They still got the point across. You learned a lot of uh, interesting things, but I am not going to make something up to tickle people's ears. If I don't know, I am skipping over that, and I will let you know that during the sermon. I apologize. I could not. I prayed about it. I thought about it, and it didn't come out. That is what is right to do. You don't make things up out of God's Word and pass off a bunch of stuff that will mislead people all the way through the rest of their walk, because once you have that in there, all of the Bible is going to be skewed from that point on. Anyway, doesn't mean we can just make up an allegorical meaning to them that suits our desires. Instead, we are to evaluate them through the lens of Jesus Christ and his work. In so doing, the reason for their inclusion would become clear. Now, we don't need to go to the story of Hagar and Ishmael and try to figure out what's going on. Paul tells us. That's the good thing about this, is he tells us exactly what's going on, and he shows us how those stories actually work. So that when we come to other stories, we can say, does this match what Paul is telling us? Okay, so we'll go on because uh, the next verse will begin to tell us about this particular issue. 23. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman born as a result of a promise. Okay, that's a little wordy. This one says, but he was, uh, he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through the promise. A little less wordy. Okay. It's, they both say the same thing, though. It's just, you know, they're a little more direct, that's all. And it probably sticks much closer to the, the Greek, would be my guess. I'd have to check them side by side. But Paul is making an analogy between the law and grace by using Isaac and Ishmael as two the examples of the two. The word but is given to show that there is a notable difference in these two sons. He had just said, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. From this sentence, one could not really discern any difference in the boys, just who they were born to. But now, to show the contrast, he continues with, he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. And we know that's true. This was Ishmael. He is the son of the union between Abraham and Hagar. Abraham went into her, she conceived, and then she bore the child. There was nothing unusual about this. It is how things have always been. If you know the mechanics of making babies, there you go. You don't need to go any further than the story on the surface, okay? 
Further, there was nothing in advance to suggest that there was anything special or important about the coming child. Having said that, Abraham, I can't tell you when I was going through the Abraham sermons, how many times he was skewered by commentators for doing this, okay? And we saw the same thing with Isaac when he uh, did a couple things, and they completely missed what God is doing and what he is trying to focus on. Abraham lived in a culture where that was as normal as can be. They still do this in parts of the world today, and nobody thinks a second of it. Because we have different morals in America, we look at everything as, oh, bad, and how shameful. And that is not at all the way it is. And Abraham did nothing wrong, okay? He was told that he would have a son. He was promised that he would be the father of many nations, etc. Okay, nothing happened for a long time. The Lord didn't, there's nothing in there to record the Lord coming back and saying, okay, you know, this isn't working out. And uh, we're going to, you know, I'm going to have Sarah fixed or whatever, and she's going to be able to have a child. Nothing happened. He's just, so eventually this comes along. She says, I want to have a child through this maidservant. That's the way it worked. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that. Jacob had four wives. Two of them were from his own wives' servants. Okay, they wanted to have children through the servants. This is what they did. Okay, that, I, when you read commentaries like that, and if they skewer somebody like Abraham for something like that, just ignore those commentaries. That is not what is being focused on by the Lord. What is being focused on is a picture of the greater redemptive narrative, the law and grace. That is why he did these things, why he included them. All right. He may have had, for all we know, he may have had other maidservants that he also had uh, children with. But all God is doing is focusing on these two. We don't know anything else about it. We don't want to add anything into it. But this is what he's doing. Now, where was I? Um, to show the contrast, he continues with, he was of the bond woman was born according to the flesh. It's Ishmael. Abraham went into her. She conceived and then she bore the child. There was nothing unusual about it. It is how things have always been. Further, there was nothing in advance to suggest that there was anything special or important about the coming child. On the contrary, Isaac came in a completely different manner. Paul says that he of the free woman came through promise. Before Isaac was conceived, the Lord had made a promise to Abraham that he would have an heir. That's recorded in Genesis 15. As a matter of fact, I got it right here. Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless? Then the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abraham said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Doesn't say any more than that. He didn't say anything about Sarah. He just said, From your own body. Did Ishmael come from Abraham's own body? Okay. Eventually, Abraham had Ishmael. Abraham had no reason at all to assume that this wasn't the son of promise. A child had been born to him, and so he raised him thinking that this was the promised child. However, some years after Ishmael's birth, Abraham was told something new, something wonderful. Genesis 17, let me take you there. Genesis 17, and we got verses. Hang on, sorry about that. Genesis 17, and we've got verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. 
Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. We'll go on. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Yitzhak. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant with his descendants after him. Then he goes on and talks about Ishmael a little bit more, etc. Okay, Yitzhak means laughter. Okay, Abraham probably chuckled when he heard that too. He's told to call your son laughter. All right, so um, sometime after that, the promise was further refined. During a visit from the Lord, Abraham was given this specific promise in Genesis chapter 18, verse 10, and he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, meaning at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And then she doubted, and you know the story about that, okay? So this is what Ab uh, Paul is focusing on in Abraham's life, all right? From these verses, we can see that there is a difference between how Isaac and Ishmael came to be. Ishmael came according to the flesh. Isaac came according to a promise, okay? That's what he's focusing on here. In fact, the timing of Isaac's birth was specifically given. The Lord knew in advance what was to occur, and it demonstrates that he had a plan concerning the future of these two boys in advance, okay? Now, I will say this, okay? I'm going to say this during the sermon on Sunday, and this will help you remember what we're going to talk about on Sunday. Just because God knows something is going to happen does not mean that you don't have your part to do in that. Some people take a fatalistic view. Some people take a Calvinistic view. And they say, well, you know, God has preordained everything because he knows everything. It does not work that way, okay? God knows that Sarah is going to have a child at that time. Did Abraham have to do his part for that child to come? Okay. Everybody understand that? This is how the Bible works. God knows things in advance, and he knows when they're going to happen. He knows everything that will ever happen in all of history for all of eternity. That does not mean that he preordains things to happen so that it must happen. My example in the sermon, I think, is that uh, uh, the tribe of Judah, right? David's going to come through Judah. Christ is going to come through Judah. But the Lord didn't decide that there were going to be this many Judaites and that this would happen. They had to do their part. For that tribe to become, you know, 74,000 people at the time of the Exodus and blah, 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 and everything that happened, they all lived out their lives, and the Lord knew that that would happen. And somebody that says, oh, you know what, the Lord knows that I'm part of Judah, and, you know, he knows if I'm going to be in the line of the Messiah or not, so I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to live my life sitting on a rock. Well, the Lord knew that he'd waste his life sitting on a rock, okay? That is how this works. Okay, so please understand that. Never take a fatalistic view about your own life. Oh, the book is written. I, I have no control over it. You have to tell people about Jesus for people to hear about Jesus. Okay, it's not going to pop into their head. We're not Calvinists in this church, and that is as close to being stupid as I could possibly think, is that, you know, God regenerates you, and he predestines you to believe. He regenerates you in order to believe, and then you believe, and then you're saved. Okay? Why would anybody send anybody them money and say, okay, I'm going to give for your ministry? Why? If that's the case, then what good is it? What good is that ministry? If God has total control over that ministry, you might as well just close it right now. 
Don't send anybody overseas to evangelize. What's the point? It, we have to do our part is the point. What will occur a short time later in their lives, meaning the lives of these two boys, will be used as a comparison between what should occur between adherence to the law and trusting in the grace of Christ. Paul is making this as simple as possible. Why? Because the Galatians are still going back and trying to trust in the law. They're departing from the grace that they had received when Paul first talked to them, and the Galatians need correction. He's going right to Scripture in order for them to see that. Okay, as simple as possible for the Galatians, and thus us, because our heads are just as hard to understand. And yet his words are not listened to, to this day, by Judaizers, by legalists, Seventh-day Adventists, by uh, Hebrew Roots Movement people, all of these people that reject the words of Paul and they come up with faulty conclusions or, you know, they twist the words of Paul. How sad that is. Life application. What good is adherence to the law if the law has been fulfilled in Christ? Think it through and give up on your legalism. It can only end badly for you when you stand before the Lord. If you are saved, if you are saved, everything that comes after the time you turn away from Christ to the law will be loss of rewards. All of it. You'll get no reward for anything you do because you have rejected Christ and his, what he has done for you. And if you are not saved and you're adhering to the law of Moses saying, I need to do this and this in order to be right before God, you will stand before the Lord for condemnation. That's all you're going to get. You're not going to get a pat on the back for observing the Sabbath every Saturday and not eating pork. The only thing that you missed out in this life was a lot of good food. Yeah, bacon. Okay, that's it. That's the only thing that's going to happen in this life is that you're giving up on things that God has ordained you can eat and enjoy, and you'll be condemned without ever having tasted them, and you'll spend the rest of eternity in a place where you don't want to be. All because of your own selfish pride. I'm not talking to anybody in particular. I'm just saying it in a general way. If you are stuck in this type of mindset, this is what Paul is saying. And on the first chapter, before he got into any of the doctrine, he said, anybody that teaches a false gospel, let him be anathema. That is what he's referring to here. Okay, 424. These things may be taken figuratively, for the woman represented two the women represented two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Okay, it's close. Uh, instead of figuratively, he says which things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage which is Hagar. So he's showing you right now, right now, he's, this is, he's telling the Galatians and he's talking to the Hebrew Roots Movement people that you are trying to put yourself back under bondage. He's equating Hagar being born to the Egyptian maidservant as bondage, okay? Paul now shows that his evaluation of the stories of Abraham, his two children, and the status of the children's mothers are given to us for a specific reason. As I said, Abraham could have had 50 concubines, and the Bible doesn't tell us that. We know afterward he had them. He had wives and concubines galore, and it says that. So we have no idea what went on in the life of Abraham, except the stream of story that God has specifically picked out for us to understand something else going on in redemptive history. Okay, They are to be taken symbolically. The things that are given here are to be taken symbolically. In other words, God included this story for a specific reason that goes beyond a literal historical account of what actually transpired in redemptive history. In that story, and in countless, others such, in countless other such Old Testament stories, 
details which seemingly have no bearing on the main narrative are given. And God doesn't waste words. There is a reason for these details. Further, in these same stories, information is left out which seems necessary to understand the story. You read a story before and you think, why didn't he talk about that? It's left out. Again, this is done for several reasons, such as requiring us to refer to other accounts to fill in the missing information. Thus, a panorama of other points in redemptive history can be derived by properly combining the various accounts. Okay, before we go on, even a, another word with this, I'm talking to somebody. I, I talked to a couple people, you know, a while ago I said I would like to find somebody that could take over this church in case I kick the bucket, because if not, it's just going to close, right? I mean, we started this, and I, I never even thought about this until I went up to Ohio, and the pastor died the week that I was up there, okay? And I suddenly realized, you know, I might not live forever. I mean, I'm talking about in this body. And so I'm talking to somebody right now that I think would make a really good fill-in here, you know, in the meantime, and uh, uh, the, the point that I was getting at, oh, yes, is that he... If, in fact, he does this, he is going to need to know his Bible extremely well. Now, he emails me a lot. He's been down here a couple times. He emails me, and he always says, very sound doctrine. Okay, but I don't know how well he knows the whole Bible. If he doesn't know the whole Bible, he's going to have to read it about 50 times before he actually gets the reign of things. But I would ask you to pray, at least right now, that if this is meant to be, that uh, you would alert him because he has a wife and children. And, you know, he's a great young man. He really is. But it has to be right for him, and it would have to be right for the church. And it just came to mind right now when I'm seeing this. There's a panorama of other points in redemptive history that can be derived by properly combining the various accounts. He's going to need to know this. I know because I've read the Bible again and again and again. I read it every morning now. I read it every night now. But I had a year where I could read the Bible every single week without interruption. I could read the Bible from front to back in a week. And I, I'm not bragging about that. It's just that the Lord gave me that opportunity. And if he's going to do this, he's going to need to have support. and He's going to need to be able to be ready for this. But he's also got to work. I mean, I still work. So uh, just keep him in prayer. I'll give you names and stuff later if he decides that he wants to be considered for this. But I just mentioned about 32, 33. Young guy. Nice young guy. And you've met him. I know. You'll like him. Um, but it's just something that we just need to have somebody that can fill in. You know, we're getting older, the church is older, and we need somebody that can say, I can step in and I can do this. And he'd have it pretty sweet because if I died tomorrow and he was to take over, I've got 10 sermons waiting for him. So he, he's already got, you know, I mean, I do them in advance. Everything is done in advance so that, you know, it, it, things are ready. And uh, so we'll see how it goes. But that came to mind right now. It's it, whoever comes into this church, you know, maybe I'm going to die and the Lord's just going to close the church. I would hate to see that happen because it's, you know, this this is a, a Bible-believing church and they're going by the way of the dodo very quickly. And it's, it would break my heart to see that, but keep those things in prayer, please. Anyway, <clears throat> some scholars see this as Paul being excessive in his evaluation, okay? He's making these things symbolic. I'll read it again. Some scholars see this as Paul being excessive in his evaluation of such passages and that we should not attempt to follow him in looking for the symbolic meaning of things God is presenting to us in his word. My answer, this is utter nonsense. Every story in the Old Testament can be and should be viewed, oh, here it is, I talked about it earlier, with four separate categories in mind. 
These categories are the literal historical, the moral, the allegorical symbolic, and the anagogical and prophetic. Having said this, extreme care needs to be taken in attempting to determine the symbolic and prophetic meaning. Scripture must be used to interpret scripture, and wild speculation is to be wholly disregarded. You'll know if a story is correct and you know your Bible. I'm not talking about somebody that just hears, oh, this means, and they don't know their Bible, and they say, oh, oh, that, that's great. Okay, if people know their Bible well enough to say, I heard that story and it doesn't sound right to me, you know that it's not correct. But if people know their Bible and they say, I can't believe it. I, I, will, I preached on these passages in Genesis. Okay, I've come up with my analysis. I am sure, sure they're right or I would not have done it. But then I've had people send me a, a, a link to a short part of a sermon and say, listen to this. And I'll say, I never thought of that. It, it just eats me up that it went right over my head. Lord, I completely missed that point. Main, usually it's not the uh, symbolic part. It's not the, you know, that's, but it's something that I think I never made that connection. And I feel so stupid. I've read this Bible how many times? And so it, this, you, you, you cannot, it is impossible. This word is so big and it is so wonderful. So when I hear somebody that's preaching on something and I hear it and I, I say, that is correct. It's because you know the rest of the Bible. But when you know the rest of the Bible and it sounds not right, it's not. I assure you of that, okay? So, need to take care. Scripture must be used to interpret Scripture. Understanding these things, Paul now shows the symbolic meaning of the story he has introduced. The birth of Ishmael to the slave Hagar and the birth of Isaac to the free woman Sarah is symbolic of two covenants. The birth of Ishmael is equated by Paul directly to the covenant which God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. It is a covenant which leads to bondage, not freedom. If you don't believe that, go back and start watching from Deuteronomy 1. And I, that's all we talk about is the freedom of grace, the bondage of the law. And what one of the sermons, it was a couple weeks ago, it was entitled, From Bondage to Bondage. They were freed from Egypt, weren't they? They were in bondage there. They were slaves to taskmasters, and he brought them to Mount Sinai, and he gave them bondage. Absolutely right. From bondage to bondage. How do we know that? It's because, as I said during the sermon, does anybody remember how you know that? Okay. Isaiah said that they will be redeemed. Well, if Israel's been redeemed, then what do they need to be redeemed for? Because it's clearly saying in the Old Testament that they were redeemed from Egypt. Well, if they were redeemed from Egypt, what is it that they need to be redeemed from? They need to be redeemed from the law, and that's the purpose of Israel. Israel was given to teach us these things, that we have a law that stands above us, and we are condemned by that law, okay? He just threw in the law, and I don't mean he threw it in. I, that was kind of careless wording, but he, he gave them the law to show other things about law, how utterly sinful sin is to God, etc. But they went from bondage into bondage, all right? So, do you remember what Dwayne Magnuson said one day here? I do, but I don't remember it right off the top he of my said, head. We all have the freedom to choose who or what will be a slave to. Absolutely, that's right. We all have the freedom to choose who or what we will be a slave to. You're either a slave to the law or you're a slave of Jesus Christ. You there there is no other position in this world that says I am totally free. You are a slave to something. All right, you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to whatever, but you have to choose who you're going to be a slave to. Mate, you know my my uh, email address, a bond servant of Christ. I got that years and years and years ago, and every time I look at it, I think that's still true. It'll never not be true. 
He is my, my Lord, and I am a slave to him. All right, the birth of Ishmael is equated by Paul directly to the covenant which God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. It is a covenant which leads to bondage, not to freedom. It captures all who are under it and binds them under sin. It shows how sinful sin is, but it cannot free anyone from bondage. This is what these Hebrew roots people need to learn, and they don't want to. They want to dwell in their own little happy spot, waiting for their day of condemnation and being chucked into the pit of hell. I don't understand that at all. When Christ, Christ offers us grace, he offers us eternity and freedom from this, and they just want to be in bondage. I don't get it. As Paul is under the influence of the Holy Spirit, his words are those specifically chosen by God to show us exactly what he, meaning God, intended for us to see concerning these two examples which have been provided. We need go no further with the symbolism. Paul will continue to explain the symbolic meaning of this ancient account through the rest of chapter 4. Life example, life application. When reading the Bible, we should continuously remind ourselves that the ancient passages, which seem to have no relevance to anything at all, either in the Bible or to us specifically, do in fact have great significance. If we can continuously remind ourselves that everything points to Christ Jesus and his plan of redemption, these seemingly quaint passages will come alive to us in a way never imagined before. Isn't it wonderful when you hear something and you say, I just, I can't believe how wonderful that is. What a marvel God shows us in this particular passage. Okay, so go ahead, um, 425, let me write something down while you're doing that. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. Okay, it's almost the same except instead of slavery, they say bondage. Okay, same thing, bondage. All right, Paul continues with his use of Old Testament pictures to reveal New Testament truths. He just showed in the previous verse that the things he is speaking about are symbolic. He noted that Hagar and Ishmael stood in contrast to Sarah and Isaac. Continuing on with this allegorical interpretation, he said that these two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. Hagar, the bondwoman, represented the old covenant. Therefore, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. That's Paul's words there. Paul has already said that these things are symbolic. Therefore, he is making a picture for us to see. When I say he, I mean God is. The reason why it is important to remember this is because far too many scholars try to convert the name Hagar into an Arabic word which means stone. From there, they make the leap that Paul is literally equating her with Mount Sinai, a big pile of stones. This is nonsense. He's already said that these things are symbolic. Hagar is simply being used to indicate the place of the giving of the law. That place then corresponds to the law itself, a law of bondage. This is fully explained in the next words, which say that it corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. Okay, here's a question before I go on. Where was the temple? Jerusalem. What did the temple exist for? worship, but sacrifices. sacrifices, which means service of the Levites. of the law, service of the law of Moses. You have a law, you've got sacrifices for it. 
Okay, so Paul has just said that this Mount Sinai is Hagar, and that corresponds directly to Jerusalem. The very thing that the Hebrew Roots Movement people today are claiming is their freedom is exactly what Paul is saying right here. Jerusalem, that is where the temple is. That is where the service of the temple is. That is where all of the things that from the Old Testament leading up to the time of Jesus pointed to. Everybody saying that, it is as clear as it could be. Jerusalem, the land of Israel, Jerusalem, is the law. It is Hagar, okay? Hagar is bondage, and he's saying that the law is bondage, okay? It's very clear if you think it through, okay? Hagar, I'm going to read that again. Hagar is simply being used to indicate the place of the giving of the law because she represents the law. It doesn't matter where the law is. It's at Mount Sinai, and then it's being carried around with the people in the wilderness, and then finally it gets into Israel, and it's at Mount Shiloh, right, for years, and then eventually David builds a temple. Actually, David decides where it is, buying the, the land from Arauna, the Jebusite, and then David wants to build the temple, and he can't because he's a man of blood, and so the Lord comes to him and says, you will have a son. His name will be Solomon, and he will build the temple for me, okay? And that's in Jerusalem, but it's the same thing. Wherever that tabernacle went, and eventually where the temple was, is the law. Got that? There's the service of the law. It's all bondage, all of it. All of Israel's history is bondage, okay? So, this is fully explained in the next words, which say that it corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. The law does not provide freedom. Instead, the law only highlights the bondage to sin that all men are confined under. Anyone who is under the law is in bondage. Jerusalem, which is now, that's Paul's word, then continues to correspond to the law. It was given at Sinai, but the temple which continued in the service of the law was in Jerusalem. Sinai, build me a tabernacle. Here's all the dimensions. Here's everything that you are to do. Here's how to carry it. Who's to carry it? It gets carried all the way through all of these years. It gets taken into the land. It gets set down in Shiloh. The whole thing. It's all law. Okay, and if you look at the tabernacle and its construction, if you were here during the Exodus sermons, you know that every single detail of the tabernacle, every detail, the wood that's used, the silver that's used, the gold that's used, how much is used, everything points to Jesus. It's only a picture of the coming Christ. The law couldn't bring Christ. Christ had to come. That was given until the time of the coming of Christ, who fulfilled all of those pictures. Okay, the sacrifices were there in Jerusalem. The feasts were held there. And the high priest, who was only a type of Christ, go read Hebrews, to come ministered there. These things simply continued on with the bondage which was introduced at the giving of the law. It's all one stream from Mount Sinai to Jerusalem. It's the same thing. It is all bondage. That's what Paul is telling us. Paul's reason for following this line of thought is the exact same reason as every other point in this epistle. Judaizers had come into the church and turn the Galatians away from the freedom which is found in the grace of Jesus Christ. Instead, they had been brought into the bondage of the law. He's simply trying to get them to realize that they were not moving forward, but instead backward. God's plan of redemption slowly unveils itself. Each step is intended to move us closer to Christ and ever closer to the freedom of heaven's wide expanse. 
The Galatians had been on the right path, but by the lies of these false teachers, they were exchanging freedom for confinement. He, his symbolic use of Hagar, Sinai, and Jerusalem was intended to get them to see this. As a technical point, the term Mount Sinai in Arabia, and I talked about this in a previous uh, Bible class, but I have it here in these notes as well, does not mean that Mount Sinai is actually in the land known as Saudi Arabia. Does everybody remember that class? Yes. Mm -hmm. It is not in Saudi Arabia. So many people have written these goofy books lately saying that the exodus of the Israelites was way over here. They went into Saudi Arabia. There's a mountain that proves it. They've got stones down there with monolithic things, and they've got, you know, this and that, and the top looks burned, and you know, all this kind of stuff that is completely fabricated. That has nothing to do with the reality of Scripture or with the historical account, okay? It is incorrect. But this interpretation has led to many fanciful claims by supposed Christian archaeologists concerning the place where the Red Sea crossing occurred. These claims both lack proper biblical scholarship, and they are untrue. Rather, the Sinai Peninsula was, at the time of Paul, go Look on any old map. Go back even to the uh, early 1900s. The Sinai Peninsula was known as what? Arabia Petraea. And as a matter of fact, the entire area there was. Okay? Arabia Petraea. Where was I now? Thus, the words Mount Sinai in Arabia fully supports the traditional location of Mount Sinai. We don't need to go. We have 2,000 years of history, of documented history of where these places are. They can follow all the way through Sinai, exactly where there was enough room for these people to stop. They've, there are wells there. There are, you know, palm trees that are still in existence because of the wells, etc. They know exactly where this route went for the most part. There are some places that are very hard to pinpoint because of the names, etc. But they know where the Exodus was. And as I said before, if the Israelites went across it, the end of where, uh, what is it, um, uh, the Sinai Peninsula is today, and they went over into Saudi Arabia, they would have had to have taken a bus with a very large engine to get them down there as quickly as the Bible says. Okay, they would not have made that trek in the time that the Bible allows. It is exactly where the traditional Sinai site is. All right, anyway, and if you disagree, please don't send me another book or send me a disagreeing email. I don't care. I am certain that what the Bible says and what the historical record for the past 2,000 years says is true. I've seen every one of the stories. I've seen all of Ron Wyatt's discoveries and all of his lies. I don't care. Okay, life application. Paul's continued use of literal historical accounts in the Old Testament in order to show symbolic truths explains why so many unusual passages are found in the Old Testament. They are literal and they are true but they are included in order for us to search out how they point to Christ and his redemptive work in history. Be sure to always look for Jesus Christ as you read these wonderful accounts, which may seem disconnected to everything else, but in the end, they are not only connected, they are vital to the overall message of the Bible. They're vital, okay? Every single one of those stories will give us another clue about the coming Redeemer, and the good thing is we're on this side of it. So we can look back and we can say, we, we see it 100%. We know, okay? The thing is, if some Jewish person that didn't love the Lord, you know, he's stuck in a uh, synagogue and he happens to pick up, uh, you know, what, what's the guy's name that did a lot of really great work on uh, 
another Jewish guy. What was his name? He did great work. If they would, Edelstein. I think it's Edelstein. Is that right? Uh, and it begins with an E or something like that. He did all kinds of great writings about these pictures and, and the like. And if they would just pick that up and see, maybe they could look back and say, I see the Lord in there. I see what God was doing. But it's very hard to get through that. You know, once you got your mind set, it's very hard to get through it. But is that what his name is? Begins with an E. Anyway, I'll remember it in the middle of the night. Um, 426, go ahead. Just let you know, that would have been a big bus. But it would have been a really big bus, too. That's right. Yeah, 600,000, yeah. 605,550, 603,550 men, plus the tribe of Levi, plus all of the women and children and the donkeys and goats. And they would have had a big bus with a really big engine to get them down there that quickly. You're right. Okay, 4, 426. But the Jerusalem that is above is free. She is our mother. Okay. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Okay, so we've got the Jerusalem above. What is that? We have another term for it. It's the, the begins with an N and ends with a W and has an E in the middle. <laughs> the new Jerusalem. I saw new Jerusalem coming out. Okay, that is what Paul, Paul and John are on the same page. If you get rid of Paul, you got to get rid of everything John writes too. Okay, the new Jerusalem. All right, Paul just showed how the law received at Mount Sinai, the Old Covenant, is a system of bondage. He did this by allegorically equating it to Hagar, the slave. From there, he showed that the bondage carried on from Mount Sinai to Jerusalem. It's all one train of bondage, all the way there, where the temple stood, and which continued to administer that same law. Hagar, the slave, Mount Sinai, Jerusalem, earthly, bondage, illegitimate children. That's the train of thought that Paul is giving us. If you are of the law, you are an illegitimate child, okay? He now notes that the Jerusalem above is free. This is pictured allegorically by Sarah and the new covenant, which was established through Christ's shed blood, okay? The Jerusalem above is speaking of the heavenly Jerusalem, where the true and eternal temple are. It is where Jesus is, okay? I'm going to take you to Hebrews chapter 12. All right, and James, one more book. James is 59, so that would be 58. And we have uh, Hebrews chapter 12, 9, 10, 11, and one more page. And I'm going to take you to 22, and it says there, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and church, church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Okay, here's a question for you. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, right? But everybody accepts the book of Hebrews because it's not identified. Everybody accepts the book of Hebrews. All right. John speaks of the New Jerusalem as well in his writings. Okay. This author of Hebrews, whether it's Paul or not, becomes irrelevant when we ask the question. And Paul's speaking about New Jerusalem, isn't he? And he's saying that this is how you get to there is through the new covenant. Okay. How many covenants are there in Christ? There's one. There's one new covenant. Okay. If there's one new covenant and Paul is preaching the new covenant in Christ, and Peter and the other apostles are preaching the new covenant in Christ, 
then that means that there is one gospel. Everybody got that? Okay, hyperdispensationalism is poison. It is absolutely as bad theology as you can get. All right, it is heresy. Okay, so we have that. We have um, Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. His next words pull in the comparison to Sarah more closely when he says, which is the mother of us all. Sarah's child, Isaac, was the son of promise. As Abraham's son, the line of those acceptable to God through faith continued. That same sonship is found in any who now have faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in him and not deeds for their salvation. The all only indicates those who have pictured, or I'm sorry, placed their trust in Christ. When he says the mother of us all, it does not include those who are not born of Christ. He's talking about the mother of us all, meaning those in Christ. Paul shows this in Galatians 3, verse 7, where he says, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. So the all in this verse is not all, all. We've gone through this before, and I like to stop, and I like to repeat it when I come to it. Not every, every in the Bible means every, and not all, alls in the Bible mean all, okay? You have to take it in the context of what the word is saying. When it says the mother of us all, it is not the mother of everybody. Jesus Christ came and died for the elect. The elect are any who call on Jesus Christ. Every single person on this planet is potentially saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is unlimited atonement potential. Jesus Christ died actually only for those who call on him. That is limited atonement actual. That's not what Calvinism teaches. That is what the Bible teaches, okay? Calvinism teaches limited atonement, period, okay? Christ didn't die for everybody. He only died for the elect. That is incorrect because they limit the atonement of Christ to the scope of the world. It is for the whole world, but limited atonement is actually only those who call on Christ. Okay, I want to make sure I got the wording right. So you can... Take Calvinism and you can chuck it in the bin. It is completely incorrect in that particular theology and in many other points as well. Okay, so um, we got that. Uh, same sonship. Yes. Okay, I'll read that again. Galatians 3, 7. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. We are sons of Abraham by faith and are thus allegorically sons of Sarah. Everybody know that you're a son or daughter of Sarah? Okay, well, now you do. We are sons of Abraham by faith and thus are allegorically sons of Sarah. Sarah, the wife of Abraham, Christ shed blood, Jerusalem above, freedom, sons of Abraham. Follows in the same line. Let me read the two together. Hagar, the slave, is over here. Sarah, the wife of Abraham, is over here. Mount Sinai is over here. Christ shed blood is here. Jerusalem is earthly. It's bondage. Jerusalem is above. That's where we are. They're in bondage. We're in freedom. They are illegitimate children. We are sons of Abraham by faith. Okay, that's the contrast between the two. The picture is seen even more fully in Revelation 2 verse 1. Then I, John, saw the holy city. Here it is, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. All right. I, I said Revelation 2. It's Revelation 21. I don't know why I said 2-1. Anyway, it's Revelation 21. All right. Life application. We can again ask ourselves whether we are trusting in Christ alone for our salvation, or are we trying to please him a little bit more by living out deeds of the law? 
If the former, you are in the sweet spot. If the latter, you might very well question if you were ever truly saved. God will not be mocked. Christ did not die so that you could continue working your way to heaven. If you are trusting in the law, you are in a bitter spot, my friend. Can we help you, sir? Uh, yes, I was uh, instructed to come down and bring something delicious for the people of Superior Word. Wow. Put it right there. How's that? We got this guy here. Yep, yeah, just said it right there. This on guy the here. Yeah, no, not on the Bible. Right yeah, right there next to it. That's, uh, oh, good. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Okay, yeah. come over come over here for a second. Come over here. Let me let me see if you come over a little more. Come next to me. Okay, this guy here. Now look over in that corner. There he is. This guy makes the best pizza in Sarasota. If you come to Sarasota, you want to come check ask me where he is and I'll send you down to him. All right, here's something for you. Thank you for walking oh, up. No, please. no, no, you take that. You it's take my that. Pleasure. Now go on, get out of here. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so welcome. So welcome. So welcoming. Absolutely. Thank you. Everyone. Not, not at all. Not at all. Have a Thank wonderful you. after or evening, I guess. Enjoy. All right. I hope you all enjoy. Oh, we will. It's Thank the best in the world. Take care. Take care now. Be blessed. Oh, it does. It smells really good. Oh my goodness. Okay. Well, the, I'll tell you what. Seems how we got pizza and we just finished a verse. We'll stop with this. I mean, but don't go away online because we got some things that we need to. Uh, Get out of the way first, but we'll stop it. We'll be in 427 next week. And um, okay, this is uh, the guy right down the, the way. If you haven't been there, please go visit him. What's that? What? Oh, yeah. Oh, listen, we will not be here next Thursday. If you're tuning in next Thursday, you're going to tune into nothing because next Thursday is Thanksgiving. And so I'm so glad you said that. Thank you. Yes, we, we are not going to have Bible class next Thursday. Okay, I will be sitting at home having um, uh, uh, smoked fat turkey. Yeah, <laughs> fat, numb, and happy. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. Thank you for telling me that. Um, and now I've lost my mind about what I was going to say. I had something to say. Um, okay, we'll smoke turkey. And, oh, this is what I wanted to say. Your pizza tonight came from Tim Stevens of Pleasanton, California. So when we uh, turn off the thing, I want everybody to wave to Tim Stevens. He was here on Sunday for church. And when he walked out, the very last thing he said to me is, I want to buy pizza for your congregation for Thursday night. And how appreciative that is. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and thank him, and then we'll have some food. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful blessings of this life. We thank you for this precious word. Oh, it's just wonderful to go through these stories and to see how Christ is on full display. And Lord, your word is so precious, and what it details is so wonderful. Help us to handle it carefully all the days of our life and never to make things up about it but to have reasonable and sound doctrine so that we don't lead people down a false path. Help us in this, Lord, because it is our desire to never bring discredit or, or mar the glory of what you have given us. Lord, uh, we also pray for any who are not here tonight. There's a few people that didn't come tonight. We pray for them, hoping they're okay. And Lord, we just uh, thank you for the chance to meet here again on Sunday, and we pray that it'll be a good service. We just pray that you will be glorified in everything we do as individuals in our personal actions. May it be so, and may it be to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Okay, so let me back this up. And I don't know if he attends online or if he watches later or what, but here we go. Break.